Uh, I think we are jinxed when it comes to computers. Um, Chris brought his very new computer. Um, only to realize that when it got here, all of a sudden, on its own, it's updating something <laughs> and will take 45 minutes to do so. So, maybe not. Maybe not. We're going to be okay. I want to go back a little bit. Um, and we talked about, all along, we've talked about from the beginning this grid about being, uh, wanting to be authoritative parents, which means that, yes, we're going to have. Um, high demands, that, that was the category, high demands, but it's also high involvement with our children. This is toughness, but it's also kindness, okay? And if we have just toughness, we don't get the results we want. If we have just kindness, they're not going to frankly learn much. But this seems to be, this is research documented, but it's also biblical. I promise I wouldn't be bringing it to you if I didn't think it aligned perfectly with what I think God has in mind for us. Um, and we talked last week a little bit about emotional intelligence. And I, I gave you a little test that you wanted to work that looked at different ways. And, and part of the reason I'm reviewing this, I apologize to those of you who are here, but we kind of have a different mix that comes in every week. And I understand that that's the nature of parents with young children. But there were four different um, parenting styles in terms of emotional intelligence. And, and I'm going to give you an example. I remember Drew saying, um, I don't remember at what age, but the swimming pool had this little froggy slide that you could go on that was, you know, not much of a slide and just barely off the water. And then it had a bigger slide. And his siblings were going on the bigger slide and he loved the froggy slide. And I remember saying, do you want to try the bigger slide? And he said, I'm afraid. <laughs> and I kind of loved that he could just call it like it was. Now let me tell you how a different kind of emotionally uh, sensitive parent might respond. The dismissing parent might say, oh, you're not afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. So how does that feel to a child? If he says, I'm afraid, and I say, oh, you're not afraid. He doesn't know his own mind. Yes, and it's confusing because he feels afraid. He's even been mature enough to label it. I'm going to have Chris tell you a story a little later. And I was the dismissing parent of my own child because she said something. She said, I was so mad. And my response to her was, this is hilarious. That was not particularly anything but dismissing. A disapproving parent, I think, frankly, is even more serious because it says, you're wrong to be afraid. And so it says, well, you're not a scaredy cat, are you? Do you see how it dismisses? It, I mean, it disapproves. It doesn't just say, you, should, you don't feel this way. It says, you shouldn't feel this way. And... Then it says the Lacey Fair, which is, oh, anything is okay. Anything goes. And it talks about the emotional coach. I want to save that one for a second because I think there's another category. And I am appalled that they don't mention it. I do think there's the category of the parent. Um, and I'll be honest, this sounds sexist, but I've seen mothers more guilty of this than I do fathers, where they're kind of so constantly checking the child's emotional well-being it's kind of like taking his temperature every hour on the hour, where they are excessively concerned about a child's feelings. And I think that cultivates a pretty unhealthy response. I think we all have bad days.
But if my mother is constantly saying, are you still feeling bad? Are you still feeling sad? How are you feeling now? I think that cultivates a pretty um, unhealthy self-centeredness. Okay, the emotional coach um, would say things like, oh, tell me more about that. How, how do you think, you know, if he says scared, do you want to tell me why you're scared? What are you thinking about that slide? Can you... Uh, the emotional coach tries to give support. I understand your feeling. Maybe you even share sometimes that you felt sad. That doesn't mean that he says, I'm angry, and that isn't that, that makes throwing a temper tantrum okay. It doesn't mean that he says, I'm angry when I hit my brother, and oh, I know you were angry. I'm so sorry. It's okay to hit your brother when you're angry. No, we're not saying about this at all. I know you're angry. Can we talk about some possible things that you can do to help you when you're angry? Because hitting your brother when you're angry is not okay. But I'm not going to tell you that you're not angry. I'll tell you, if I'm mad, I don't want somebody telling me I shouldn't be mad. That's not helpful to me at that moment. And I gave you the quote from Scripture that I think is, the wording is there, I think intentionally, be angry and sin not. I don't think emotions are good or bad. I think they are what they are. Now, what we do with that emotional energy can be good or bad. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Then I talked uh, briefly about self-esteem, and I think I kind of ranted about it. I'm sorry. I have seen the concept of self-esteem pretty seriously abused, and that was what I was reacting to. Um, when I was raising my children, um, the youngest, the oldest was born in the early 70s, um, Self-esteem was just the thing. We were all concerned about self-esteem. Um, and I even think there's something really important about self-esteem. But I think there's some things we need to tweak it out. Um, in the first place, how would you, what is, would be a healthy description of self-esteem? If we want our children to have good self-esteem, what is that? I don't want them to feel ashamed for being themselves. Ooh. I like that a lot. I don't want them. Come on, sit down. I don't want them to feel ashamed. Of, <laughs> I don't want them to. Just say that again for me, Rachel. I don't want them to feel ashamed for being themselves. Okay. I don't want them to be ashamed of being themselves. I like that. Yeah. <coughs> we talk about a child having good self-esteem. Having resilience. Ooh. Of trying things and not withering away if it doesn't work out. I really like your choice of words, resilience. Yeah. yeah. Not afraid to take a risk. Not afraid of failure. I think it's easy to think, some people even think of self-esteem as a child has self-esteem. If, if he's socially poised and he can go meet everybody, I'm going to tell you, I think that's more of a personality variable. I, I don't think that really has to do with self-esteem. So you had wonderful social poise. You could meet any stranger and talk to them for an hour. Um, but I think that's separate um, from self-esteem. Um, I, I would even use an inner strength. Um, that, um, th that there's um, a peace with who I am. Um, 
I don't think it means that I can do anything. I gave you the example that is dramatic and sweet is the moment that Drew, um, football player Drew Brees is talking to his children and he says, you can do anything. I think he feels that his hard work has been a significant variable in his success, and I sure wouldn't argue with that, but I don't think any child can do anything, and I think to believe that you can do anything is probably pretty unhealthy. Uh, you, you, you tell that kid that, that he can beat up anybody on the playground, and if you're wrong, he is going to get his face smashed. I mean, I, that's, that's, that's just reality. Okay. Um, I think self-esteem in its healthy way has two components. I think a child needs to feel loved and valued. And I think we tend to do a pretty good job of that piece. But I think the other piece of that is the child has got to be competent. He's got to see himself as competent. I'm going to spend a good bit of time on that. Um, child to feel loved and valued by his family, by his church. And it is a powerful message to your child, both that you love and value him and that there is a God that loves and values him. And I, I, I really believe that we need to be very intentional about expressing this to our children. I, I used to love to play a game with the grandchildren. We would, you know, I love you, and who else loves you? Mommy and Daddy love you, and Aunt Megan and Uncle Douglas love you, and Aunt Perry loves you, and we would go through the entire, which is, we have a fairly extensive family, we would go through all of that, and God loves you. I know that's words, but I want that to be a message that plays back in their heads. Um, I love Romans 8. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, present, nor future, powers, height, or depth, or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And I, I think that's what we want to say. Now, just as God's love for us is unconditional, we want our love for our children to be unconditional. But that does not mean that we will like our children all the time. Okay? So I, I don't want you to feel guilty when you have that moment that you really want to put them in a box and ship them back. Um, I think that's the nature of parenting. But it does mean that we're going to try to do what's good for our children all the time. Um, it, it resounded this morning during communion, the, the reading was Philippians 2, where, where it talks about Jesus giving up his place as deity. It, it, in a much less significant degree, but it's still there. We give up our rights as parents to do what is right by our children. And so you're going to sacrifice. There's going to be a time when you're desperate for sleep and you give it up because of the need of that child. And there are going to be times when you really want something and you're going to buy something that's good for your child instead. So, Okay, how does a child know that his parents love him? Can you tell me how you knew you were loved by your parents? I guess I had to be a little older. I would see other kids. I'm from rural areas. I see kids who maybe didn't show up at school with the famous clothes or not always did. Eventually, I put it together with me. They showed up. They fed me. They cared for you. Yes. I did sports. They got me there. Yes. Yes. What was good and important to you, that might happen. Yes. Yes. I would say the investment of time. 
And I am not here to make anybody feel guilty because I know time is a commodity that you do not have enough of. But I, I, I don't think you can substitute a little quality time and make that enough. I, I, I'm not saying that... I, I, I think there's a balance there, but I, I, I think you've got... To have. And so if your time is really tight, if you're doing the best you can, then what time you do have with your child, make it really good quality. Um, Tamara, I think we'll relate to this. I have a vivid memory of lunchroom duty um, one day. Now, nobody's favorite job. Um, but I saw a mother rush in to have lunch with her child, and that was great. We encouraged that. And she sat down, and her phone rang immediately. And for the 25 minutes that there she was there with her child, she was on her phone 20 minutes at that time. Now, in fairness, maybe she had promised him that she would come that day and it turned out to be the worst possible day from her work situation. I don't want to judge that mother on that 25 minutes. But if she checked off that she spent 25 minutes with her child that day, she didn't because she wasn't engaged with him at all. And I'm not here so much to, you've got, you're going to have to weigh how you're spending your top child. And I'm, I'm not going to judge that for you. But if your time is tight, grab what you can. And it may be in the car. It may be turning off your music and having a conversation with your child. Um, my girls played softball next door to us. It was beautiful. Mm -hmm. They could go over by themselves early. I could get there just in time for the game. And then they aged out. And they played in Bellevue. And Douglas played somewhere else on the other end of the earth. And my husband had the audacity to agree to two evening astronomy lads. <laughs> I, I was mad. I really was. And a really good friend of me straightened me out. She said, Gail, see this as your van ministry. Your children are stuck in the van with you. It's a great time to have conversations. And she really did help me see this as an opportunity. And especially with sports, you have all sorts of opportunities to talk about what happened because a player got so mad and they lost their pool and how that affected things and look at what this coach did. There were just an enormous teaching moments. So grab whatever teaching moments you do have um, because I, do, I think you're right time. Which one of these do you want? Um, <coughs> right here. How does a child know his parents love him? Yes. Um, just back to the concept of being intentional with using your time and uh, something when you were talking about that phone conversation that kind of made me think of, but um, recently uh, on a different subject of hearing about uh, writing down three things you're thankful for and sharing that with someone. So like I can think of things I'm thankful for every day, but not intentional about sharing with someone else, someone that doesn't really register. <coughs> Same idea of like I'm going to run a marathon, I'm going to do the log of the exercise that I did. I kind of think that if we had an idea like that for our children, for the time we spent with them, and you'd be like, wow, it's, it's been pretty empty, you know, for just put on a movie tonight because I'm tired or, or, or whatever, versus 
oh, we actually went to Sonic and got an ice cream. Yes, yes. something, yes. whatever. Yes. So just a, just a note to myself, I think I should start keeping a written record of that because I think otherwise, when we, when we make that excuse to ourselves, oh, this is the exception, I have to take this call right now. Oh, I'm so tired this morning. Oh, I don't feel like reading to you tonight. If you look at your log and it says that's what you do every night, then it's not an exception. And that's the kind of self-discipline that is huge, both for us as parents and for us to model for our kids. Um, I remember years ago, and Renell will remember that um, a family, that Carolyn, um, her first husband, Gordon Forrest, he preached, oh, I think maybe 45 minutes an hour away. They had five kids, and he would take one of the boys with him. She didn't always go with him, but he would take one of the boys with him. And, and the father, I remember, kind of begrudged the time that it took so long to drive out there and preach and then drive back. And just took him away from the family. But one of those boys talked about how much he treasured that time with just his dad to ride out there and have his dad's undivided attention there and back. So again, kind of ceasing season for Yes. Um, I was just thinking the word connection. I think that's the root of it all. And I they hear different people say, no, it's the words they say, it's the time they say, it's the service they give me. And everybody has their different love language, but just keeping the connection with them in some way, with this, if it's the sports connection or the words connection or the time, just that connection. Well, and really in that grid that we keep talking about, the authority, the other piece of it is that involvement or connection. That's exactly what that's trying to get at. Um, <coughs> it is. I, I think you can also build routine along these lines. If, if your routine is every night to read a story, it's going to be hard to say, I'm too tired. If that kid is looking forward to that story, and that's what you do. I, um, one of my kids has, at, at supper, their routine is to have their children what was the best thing about the day and the worst thing about the day. It just forces some of the conversation at supper to be about what the kids are doing, what's going on in their lives. And again, I'm, I'm real believers in that. Okay. Um, there is an article that I have found fascinating. Um, it's by a psychologist. And she talks about um, the... Um, the Generation Me, and frankly, you all are so young. Some of you are part of that Generation Me. She talks about that because of birth control and abortion, there was never a generation that was more wanted. These are plain babies. These are babies that people <laughs> wanted. Um, and parents loved these kids, and they did wonderful things for these kids. And these kids are kind and sweet, but even have noble aspirations. But when the first thing really hard came, they just kind of disintegrated the problem. They didn't get into the college of choice. Their girlfriend broke up with them. They didn't get the job they thought they wanted, or they got it, and it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Um, I have a friend that talked about these children have no preparation for impact. In other words, they are just going through life and it's going to be wonderful. And then when it's not, they haven't a clue what to do with it. 
And those of you who've been involved in the Otter Creek Kindergarten know that Ms. Pat has a wonderful expression. Prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. Okay? And I want to spend a few minutes talking about that. Um, what I think that study says is, yeah, click one more time. Does it mean that love is not enough? And I'm going to submit to you that that is true. That love's wonderful, but just loving our child is not enough. That there is a training and teaching part that's really, really important. Okay, Chris, next one. Well, what is all of that? You can give competency. Um, you cannot give the competency. <laughs> yeah, that's your stuff. That's my work computer. Um, but you can provide opportunities for your child to earn it. Um, and go on to the next one. Okay, I love this scripture. And I don't think I'm abusing this. Um, all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, that the man of God may be equipped. I... Another word for training is to equip your child, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. I don't think a child can have good self-esteem. I don't think they can feel good about who they really are. I don't think they can be resilient. I don't think they can be unafraid of some failure if, in fact, they haven't had some of those experiences. Okay, next one. Okay, I love this. There are... And again, this is where I think science supports what Scripture is saying. There's a study, it's fascinating, where mothers of one-year-olds, so some of you that have got those little bitty ones, they sit the mother down and, and the baby, and I think it's some kind of little table, you know, those cute little chairs, and they give the child a toy. And they just ask the mother to sit with the child. Well, some of the mothers obviously <coughs> feel that they are supposed to teach the child how to do it. And so when the child starts to stack the blocks, then, oh no, you gotta, gotta put another, you gotta line them up. She's really actively taking over what the child is doing. Some of the other mothers didn't get the feeling that they were supposed to monitor, you know, they weren't doing anything, they pick up the toy if it drops, or just kind of facilitate, but they're not in charge of the toy. Then they remove the mothers and give the child another toy. The, the children of the controlling mothers don't do very much interesting and creative with the child toy. But the children of the mothers who had just been kind of on the side and kind of supporting, they play much more creatively with the toy. Now, this is going to feel a little bit different when we've talked about connecting. We're talking about now the parent valuing the child's independence and autonomy, letting the child do it. Okay? There's another study, if you'll go on to the next one, of elementary school age. And for, and they kind of divide mothers into those that are very controlling and those that support the child's autonomy. In other words, in saying, oh, I'll do it to be sure it's right, letting him do it. And it may not be quite so perfect, 
but when the mother was both supporting of Tommy, that means she's not doing all of it for him. She is involved, so she's interested. She's encouraging. And that there is good structure. The children were more self-regulated, more responsible, and had better school performance. Okay? Let me tell you a story. It is one of my all-time <laughs> sad stories. I was at Lipscomb for 17 years. In the fourth grade, the Lipscomb students memorized the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's a chapter about love. It's a longer chapter. It probably has 14 to 15 verses, but it is certainly doable for smart fourth grade. <coughs> That's just a requirement of fourth grade. They worked on it at school, and then there comes a due date. And if you haven't learned it, then the teacher gives you extra opportunity to work on that during free play. Now you can argue that that doesn't help them love scripture if they're missing free play. Mm -hmm. I'll get that argument. But I, very few children have any difficulty with it. So this mother comes in, I want you to exempt my child from memorizing 1 Corinthians 13. He just can't do it. I said, oh really? He seems like such a smart child to me. Oh, it's just, it's just too much for him. He can't do it. He's going to hate going to church. He hates, he's going to hate the Bible. He just can't do this. There are a lot of decisions that I made about parents that were not good. I felt good about this one. I said to her, I have been here 10 years. We have 100 fourth graders every year. That is 1,000 fourth graders that have memorized 1 Corinthians 13. And you want to tell me that your child is not able to do that. If that's your decision, I will honor that. Did you see what she's trying to do? It's a little bit hard. He had to work on it. The funny is, I can't remember what she decided. <laughs> I think she finally had him on it, but I'm not absolutely positive about that. But I watched over time. And her need to intervene and protect just devastated him. Did he have any confidence? No! Because mother didn't think he could do it. We were talking about this once in a class, and oh, it's in my notes, I, I, I won't call the name, but one of your wonderful, um, someone like you said, we were talking about how do you know <coughs> something's too hard for a child? And he said, in his experience, that if the child's mother thought he could do it, he could probably do it. And what I think that means is that very often we're the ones that hold back because we're scared of the struggle. Next one. When you continue to do something for your child that he can do for himself, you rob him of the opportunity to develop competency. Um, I've already told you about the fourth graders that were just sweet as they could be and couldn't keep up with anything. And the teacher had them write some paragraphs about what chores they did and they didn't know what chores were. They, they'd never been given the opportunity to learn to do things. And they were sweet. But they were just kind of a disaster when it came, came to keeping up with things and doing. Okay. Um, let me hold. Yeah, let's do this one. Okay. This talks about a child's different perceptions of himself. 
we want him to believe he is capable. So how does he get, how does he come to feel he is capable? Overcoming something that seems tough. Yes, and doing something, taking care of something. Um, again, and I'm, all these are going to come from school, but that's, that's the place I lived for a long time in my life. Um, again, a little boy that couldn't seem to keep up with anything. And we talked. To, and again, there are great differences in children. I, I have some that can keep up. i got one that could organize the world. Probably couldn't organize the world. Um, but but still, there are certain things um, that you have to you have to kind of learn to manage. And this child couldn't; and he just couldn't keep up with things. And so we talked about. I said, "Well, you know, what does he do?" Oh, well, I I, I fix his backpack. And I said, "No, I think he's big enough to unpack his backpack. I think he's big enough tomorrow morning to pick up a lunchbox and put it in his backpack. Let's start with doing some of those kinds of things." There's nothing that makes us feel like we're competent more than doing it, okay? I don't get a stomachache before I come in here to class because my life has given me a fair amount of opportunity to speak to a small group. I was pretty nervous the first few times I did it. But it's not, I don't know that I do it that well, but I am at least familiar with how it's done, okay? And so that is a huge thing. Amy got lots of mileage out of being able to bake a really decent chocolate chip cookie when she was in middle school. <laughs> That's little, but it felt good. My brother in high school knew a little bit about fixing cars, and he had a lot of opportunity to, to share and to be affirmed because he knew a little bit about fixing cars, okay? Yes. Um, sorry, I was just thinking about um, two things. Um, one, I I try to do this, and I try to do my 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 motto is you've got to try it first, and um, until you've tried to practice it, I don't really feel comfortable with you saying I can't. Absolutely, it's not a can't at that point. It's a won't. And won'ts are won'ts, but it's not a can't. If that makes any sense. Um, but I also have a, I have my middle son, um, we make him make his lunch, we make him pack his lunch, we make him, if he leaves his book bag at home, he's left his book bag at home. And he just doesn't care about those things enough to manage them. And so, so it's, it's a little bit hard. It is, it's, it's not a natural consequence. really wants him to manage it, but he just doesn't. <laughs> and, and, and so there's not a lot, there's not, it, that's not that you can't use it as a consequence. Um, yeah, that's, <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of children, there are a lot of adults, <laughs> okay? So if you're going to teach a particular skill, you're going to have to find it in a way that matters. And I want to come back to you, I don't take the lunchbox to school, that's, let's talk about that in more, a little bit more depth later on. Okay, um, no, no, go back, I contribute in meaningful ways and I'm genuinely needed. I know that seems meaningless to a 13-month-old, but that's where you want to be, where that child has a role in what's good for the family. And it can be very little things. It can be, you know, he does this particular chore, but it's, it's really good for children to have something that they do that matters for the good of the family. 
and this one, I can influence what happens to me. Okay? Interpersonal skills, understand emotion, develop self-control, get along with others, responds to consequences of life with responsibility and judgmental skills. We had a fascinating conversation. I can't get this out of my head. That I had yesterday. Um, I have a friend who is the director of the Spring Hill location with Missy Children's Home. And they serve seriously delinquent boys. These boys are, for the most part, in custody, come through the court system, are given, <coughs> their custody is given to the Department of Children's Services, and the Children's Services places them in various programs depending on the severity of their needs. Um, these boys often have drug and alcohol problems. They, they are not violent. In other words, they probably, they've gotten in plenty of fights but they don't have a history of stabbing somebody or trying to kill somebody. They're not quite that severe, but they're severe. So I said, we were talking about the boys, and in fact, um, I said, well, describe what's typical. He, I said, you know, tell me about it. He said, he didn't hesitate. He said, the word I would use to describe almost everyone is selfish. And I said, selfish? I expected you to say angry or neglected. And he said, no, it's selfish. They have a program that they work with the boys uh, to help them to be accountable. He said, I know in psychological counseling right now, guilt is not very popular. But he said, that's the problem. These boys don't feel guilt for their behavior choices because they do not understand how their behavior affects somebody else. And therefore when they are unkind or they you know, shove somebody or they take more than their share, they don't get that that does something to somebody else. He said, we are intentionally teaching guilt so that they will understand that your behavior does have effect and consequences on somebody else. Now, before you panic over this, I do think there's a huge difference in guilt and shame. Guilt is what you learn from. You can do better next time and you're forgiven. Shame is something that you're labeled with that you can never do enough to get rid of. We don't ever want to go to shame. But do you see how the importance of seeing the consequence? This is part of how we equip our kids, that they need to see the consequence. This is as biblical as it gets, that when I do something unkind, when I am impatient, there are consequences to my behavior. And I'm really sorry that he doesn't care that he doesn't have his lunchbox. In the big scheme of things, that's not going to make much difference. But we want him to see that there is a response to his behavior in the lives of other people. Okay. Yes? So the, the very recent brother reports in this, you're trying to teach and trying to do, trying to teach the guilt but not do the guilt. Uh, <laughs> yesterday's child, except he's all had a can't spray paint. Uh, 
so how? I mean, it's so hard to grin and feel time like you should feel so bad about what you did. It was so dangerous. It was so foolish. Okay, but now let's that happen or didn't happen. I don't. He doesn't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Does he understand though? I mean, let's let's be fair. Remember that first thing is age appropriate. Remember the child that pulls all the ashes out of my fireplace and throws them all over I it. I love that story because he honestly didn't know. You would think, well, maybe he should have been suspicious. And yes, but the thought of doing that was pretty powerful. Okay, I, I think you've got to think. Did he really know how dangerous it was? I what seven years old. I doubt very many seven-year-olds understand that spray painting somebody else in the face might not be fun. <laughs> and so... <laughs> My brother did it to me when I was like <laughs> six or seven. <laughs> he was four years older. <laughs> that sounds a little more suspicious. <laughs> I, I thought it was awesome because I was like a six-year-old, right? <laughs> Again, I, I know. I know what that does in your gut. I, 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 that's where you've got to identify your own emotion. But I think we've got to be really careful about judging a child as having done this for an intentionally bad, destructive, harmful thing. Now, once we've had discussion and understanding, and I'm putting the spray paint up here because that means it's important that you don't ever get the spray paint out without asking permission, and he crawls on the ladder and gets it out, then that's a different, I think that's a different scenario. Let me tell one more story we're gonna go, oh, I'll tell it quick. This is one of the things that I am most proud of little Drew. Um, <laughs> And I think he was only three. He could have been four at the time. Um, we have wood floors in our house, and they're really old. And there was a little piece that he just kind of cracked off and left a little edge of a, of a nail. It, it was underneath, underneath the level of the floor, so it wasn't that you were stepping on it. But he likes to wear just his socks and no shoes. And every time he walked across that, that little nail was catching on his sock. I was oblivious to this. I don't go around in my sock feet to the same extent that he does. This is Christmas. All 17 of us are at my house. So it is just, it is a zoo and a wonderful and zoo-like experience. <laughs> and I see him, he asked for masking tape. I have no idea why he wants masking tape. But I, I said, I believe there's some aspirin tape in such and such a drawer, and I don't pay any attention. And then I realized later, he goes and gets the aspirin tape, he tears off a piece of aspirin tape, and he puts it down to cover that little piece that keeps catching his song. Now, the reason that's so dear to me is because he feels, at least in that one moment, empowered enough. He can do it. He is equipped to find the solution. He didn't ask anybody's permission. He just went and took care of it. And at the end of the day, I think that's what we're going to do. See you next week. <laughs>
Oh, Chris, we didn't tell the story about Will. We'll do that next week.